Good afternoon and welcome to Have We Got Panel News For You. Um, we're delighted you can all join us um, at once again. Um, my name is Charlie Banner, calling from Keating Chambers. And uh, as usual, can I remind you all, please, to consider making a donation in view of, uh, in lieu of um, a registration fee, uh, either to Brian May's Save Me Trust, uh, the Ukraine GoFundMe page or shelter or to a local charity of your choice. We're thrilled um, this evening to welcome back for second appearance uh, on uh, our show, Joanna Avery, the government's chief planner, who's uh, obviously had a fairly quiet uh, period at work recently. I've got nothing at all to discuss <laughs> of any significance. So hugely welcome, hugely looking forward to hearing your um, discussion later on, led by Paul. Joanna, can you tell us you're, you're calling from somewhere different? I think you were calling from Wimbledon last time we had you on the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Marshall Street. I'm on the fourth floor in Marshall Street. And if you get a bump in numbers, it's because a lot of the third floor in Marshall ah. Street have dialed in. <laughs> Hello to them and you. Uh, what have you chosen as, as your theme uh, this evening? Oh, well, uh, I've, I think I gave you all a bit of a conundrum, didn't I? So um, I went with an object and then you've got to try and make it into a, into sort of a recreational or, other, or otherwise drink. So my object is a shoe or shoes. <laughs> so to explain, oh, this is one for Mary. <laughs> so to explain, I'm putting these shoes on the minute, the minute we finish this session and I'm hot footing it down Whitehall to go and celebrate and thank a huge number of people who work in local government at the um, Association of Directors of Environment Planning and Transport at their dinner. Um, and so this is shoes, a celebration. So I'm in the water for now, but there'll be a drink to come with the shoes on. Uh, and also the reason for shoes is because I've worked with amazing women over the years and we've all had a mild shoe obsession. So this is a call out to all my lovely people. Cool <laughs> <laughs> cool I'm sure I've seen Paul in a pair of those at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, uh, in the town eagle offices, I think. <laughs> I am, I am. I'm in the city. Uh, good evening. Uh, welcome, Joanna, to the show and everyone else. Lovely to see you. Uh, yeah, I'm back in uh, back in London in the offices. And, well, it's a very interesting uh, choice, Joanna Shoe. And I just, just decided, actually, to bring in my near my newest purchase, which happens to be rather flat compared to yours but this is my Birkenstock which I'm having had three weeks in a suit I'm enjoying feeling free. Fantastic Mary great great to see you Paul how you doing mate? I'm very well thank you Charlie um I I, I couldn't really think work out a drink in terms of the shoot <laughs> thing. <laughs> very you. clever uh, and uh, <laughs> you, you'll notice that my, my favorite uh, footwear as you will know is obviously my favorite docks so uh, so I've gone to town in relation to it. So cheers. Nice to see you, Joanna. <laughs> Sash. Hello. Good afternoon, Charlie. I'm in Hampstead and I'm very pleased with Joanna's theme because I am a Cordwainer who are the livery company celebrating their 750th year and they are the shoemakers livery. So I have got some very, I'm going to rival Joe with oh, my own shoes. <laughs> That's superb. You ain't glow in the dark. <laughs> Chris, how are you doing? Hi, very well, Charlie. Hello, Joanna. I am um, wearing my favourite T-shirt. This is from New Zealand. It's a sheep in trainers. Mm. And it says, just be, <laughs> just be yourself. Um, I haven't got as many shoes as you have, Mary, I'll be honest. Uh, <laughs> but I have got this quite cool one. That's a shoe from a Ooh. guy called Usain Bolt. Ever been to a charity dinner... Got drunk and bought something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's signed by the great man himself, in my opinion, along with David Thompson, the finest athlete there was. Uh, presumption is in the mood. He's got his uh, cycling shoes on. You wouldn't mm. think Presumption was a big cyclist, would you? But he loves it. He loves uh, a bit of cycling. And uh, I'm at home at Hogwarts. I'm drinking water because tonight I'm taking my son to his school disco. And I've told him. Don't stand in the corner talking to the boys. The girls like to be asked to dance. Good man. But the question is, are you going to do some dad dancing? That's the real question. Yeah. No, no, no. no. Or no DJing? Dad DJing, no? Well, as you know, I, uh, I recently returned from a holiday in Nashville. Uh, which had two things. One, it featured a Bon Jovi concert. He's a cowboy on a steel horse he rides. And also, they're very big into their western. So I got my cowboy boots. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, yes, which uh, I thought there would be single use 
uh, boots when I bought them in Nashville. But it turns out <laughs> I managed to wear them out of the show within two weeks of returning. So so thanks, Joanna, for giving me an excuse to wear them a second time. They're very painful, must be said, to wear, <laughs> um, <laughs> particularly when you're watching a concert. Anyway, we've got lots to cover, so um, let's crack on. And I think, Chris, you're going to go first, aren't you, and, and tell us about a, um, a high court case, uh, Mrs Justice Lang. Yes, I am, Charlie, and uh, this is a case, I think we've got the, if we bring the page up, uh, it's a case, um, Solomon, um, and it's against Bournemouth and Christ Church and Paul Council. Uh, it was a judicial review made by Mr Solomon to a decision on the 4th of November 2021 for the grant of planning permission for housing and some commercial uses behind her House uh, judgment came out on the 19th of May. Mrs. Solomon wanted a 12 metre ecological corridor between herself and the development. And the officers considered this and rejected it. Uh, there was an ecological corridor provided, but the officers rejected the idea it needed to be as wide as 12 metres. Now, this was an allocated strategic town centre site. And the council acknowledged in the officer's report it needs to find 5,000 new homes within its existing urban areas as a requirement of the development plan. So Mrs. Solomon um, challenged the decision because they didn't accept the 12 metres that she had suggested and uh, nor did the members visit and look at the view from her house. Now, Mrs. Solomon had been successful already challenging the council uh, once already um, for having failed to take into account, or having taken into account, I should say, the developer's biodiversity mitigation and enhancement plan, which had not been certified by Dorset County Council's natural environment team. Why was that necessary? Because the council had a policy, ME1, in its plan that said just that. It needed all these to be approved by Dorset County Council, these biodiversity mitigation plans. Now, the council um, consented to judgment and redetermined the application with a new officer's report. And at that stage, the council had subsequently withdrawn from the Dorset Diversity Protocol. Um, and uh, that was because they had their own biodiversity officers at that stage. And I dare say uh, it may have been proving a little tricky in the urban areas to deliver some of the regeneration sites. Um, now, the application came back. The members did go on a site visit, but they viewed the site from an area adjoining the gardens of um, Mrs. Solomon and her neighbours. They didn't go into her individual property. And uh, she uh, had asked for the site visit to be from, from her house. So the question for the court was really whether this condition could be imposed and was it approached lawfully? And it was it a material consideration that was ignored or a relevant consideration and so on. And there's a very useful review of the law concerning Wheatcroft amendments, uh, beginning at paragraph 64. And of course, the Holborn Studios case, uh, which we know put a bit of a dampener on some of the amendments. And there's quite a useful review. So if you're looking to amend your scheme at the application or appeal stage, this is a very useful, condensed, uh, about three pages section on that. The key issue, though, really was what would be the consequence of that condition? Well, a 12 metre wide buffer on an urban site will have a significant effect. So uh, it would have sterilised the development, wouldn't have been possible to develop what was proposed. And so the court said it was acceptable for the officers not to accept the condition. It did so in the context that it would be open on other occasions to do that, but not here because it struck at the heart of the proposal and would have effectively required um, a new application. The member's only option really in accepting the condition should have been to refuse the application because they're inconsistent. And as for the site visit, the judge carefully reviewed all the correspondence and um, Mrs. Silliman had not made clear that she was insisting on a site visit. That was a bit of a after event uh, wish, I think, really. And so having reviewed it, she rejected the idea that the council had created a legitimate expectation that they should have seen it. And obviously the fact the members had seen it from very close by and gained an impression satisfied the court. So the challenge was unsuccessful. But as I say, Mr. Solomon had been successful the first time of asking in, um, in the fact the council hadn't followed the development plan. Very useful case in reviewing Wheatcroft, in my opinion. Thanks, Chris. One to note. And Mary, you're going to take us to South Somerset now. 
I am indeed. Uh, and in South Somerset, the appellant sought permission uh, on appeal for 200 homes, 35% affordable housing. It was a greenfield site. In fact, it was two fields uh, 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 north of Ansford and Castle Carey in, in South Somerset. And you will see that the decision was dated the 17th of May 2022. Uh, and I can tell you that the application was made originally in June 2019. So that took a considerable amount of time. Uh, to be A, refused, and then B, for the appeal uh, to be heard, um, but successful as it, as, as it was. So this site was adjacent to the station in Castle Carey, uh, which was described by the inspector, uh, Hayley Butcher, as being, and I quote, predominantly isolated and in a rural setting, albeit close to Ansford and Castle Carey. For those of you who use that station, you will be familiar with uh, that uh, sort of description. There was no doubting in the inspector's minds that there would be visual impacts and harm to the setting of the station, which was itself a non-designated heritage asset. But the inspector importantly rejected the council's argument that it was a valued landscape whilst reasoning that nevertheless it had a number of notable landscape qualities. She found harm to the character and appearance of the area uh, and so a failure to comply with policy EQ2 of the local plan. She also found because of the, uh, the harm to the heritage asset, a failure to comply with EQ3. Contrary to the appellant's assertion, that, uh, she found that the site was outside the broad direction of growth, which had been identified in the, in the local plan. The appellant had covered off the phosphate issue, uh, uh, which is in South Somerset, as in other parts of the country, by submitting a fallow land strategy, which provided mitigation in the form of off-site land use change and applying the phosphate calculator. They were able to demonstrate that no harm would be would arise as a result of their proposals. Slight little twist, because uh, the last minute Natural England had issued an up updated guidance um, and so there was a point here about whether the uh, calculator uh, needed to be reapplied, uh, um, but Natural England um, accepted that there would be a transitional period and that, that a recalculation wasn't required. There was no uh, housing land supply. There was no, it, was, it was agreed between the principal parties that uh, there was no housing land supply, but the issue was uh, an extent. Uh, the extent of that shortfall was in it was an issue and the other the other point that the council were making was that it was all uh, very much in the short term because the phosphate uh, issue would be overcome and therefore land would be released but I mean interestingly the inspector rejected uh, one of the council's really big sites that they were relying upon for their uh, uh, five-year housing land calculation she rejected that um, but she didn't actually come up with a final conclusion as to what she determined the actual housing land supply was, she simply noted that it would be worse than the council were contending and that she didn't agree it would be short-lived. So she applied the paragraph 11D to tilted balance. She gave significant weight to the harm to the countryside. She gave uh, a substantial weight to the benefits of the housing. The proximity of the, uh, of the housing to the station was also given significant weight, moderate weight to improve footpaths and economic benefits. And although there was considerable opposition and she recorded that, the inspector found that there were material considerations why this decision should be otherwise than in accordance with the development plan. And well done, Sasha White. Uh, who was um, promoting, successfully promoting this for the appellants and his team. Uh, and, um, and yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Thanks, Mary. Congrats, Thanks. Sasha. Well done, Sash. Um, and over to you now to tell us about a case in Bromley. Thank you. Yeah, that was, a, can I just say as an aside, that was a tough inquiry for me, because as you mentioned, Mary, Castle Kerry Station is when I turned up eight years of age and arrived, I thought I'd actually got a train to the moon in 1975. Little did I know, I think it was my revenge was to build housing and, and obliterate the environment that I arrived in as a five-year-old, I mean, an eight-year-old. Anyway, on happier climbs, let me go take a slightly more urban to Bromley by Bow and deal with an appeal by the Southern Housing Group against the London Legacy Development Corporation. Now, 
interesting. London Legacy Development Corporation is obviously tasked by government with bringing about development, and that is what the applicants were seeking. This was a scheme for 435 dwellings, and the inspector was Paul Jackson, who, note, it's quite pertinent for the decision, is a qualified architect. I actually think he's a superb inspector, and let me quickly say I do not have any cases coming up in front of him, but I think he's a very good inspector. And um, this, the critical point about this case is we all speculate about the provisions of the MPPF about optimization and, and how those aspirations in policy are related to also the aspiration for high quality design. Now, the policy context is important because the development plan establishes if you're outside one of the areas identified for tall buildings, you basically need exceptionally good design. So that was the policy test that the inspector applied. And I think it's fair to say, and I think we've all been there, notwithstanding our brilliance as advocates, sometimes when you have a design that the inspector doesn't like, it's you're frankly not going to shift him, and I think, or her. And this is an absolute classic example of where the inspector just quite patently didn't like the design. And there's some pretty strong comments, actually. The towers would be oppressive. They would be overbearing. The development would overwhelm the adjacent development and it would over be an overwhelmingly dense form of human habitation. So surprise, surprise, when you cumulatively add those up, he said he concluded finally the disadvantages principally relating to the design of the proposal would seriously outweigh the benefits. So it's, it's a really interesting case. And I think it goes with a theme that we often say, and Joe will obviously be hearing this, that design is, is a critical element of consideration, particularly with large urban schemes at the moment. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Sasha. I'm going to cover the last one super quickly, which is a, um, a tall, another tall buildings one. And note the contrast. This is in Deansgate uh, in Manchester. Um, and it was a fusion student uh, accommodation proposal um, for a 28-storey uh, purpose-built um, student accommodation um, and um, there were a number of issues derived from the reasons for refusal, all really relating principally to the, the impact of development in various ways. And in every single respect, in relation to every one of the six main issues, the inspector uh, found the council hadn't really landed a blow on the scheme. So well done, uh, Chris Katkowski, Kit Kat, uh, our great friend of this show, um, for um, a flawless performance. The, uh, in relation to um, the impact on character, um, the, the inspector, John Braithwaite, found the location of the site uh, and aspirations of, of relevant development plan policy required a landmark building for the site. He thought that the appeal scheme was an appropriate design response in relation to that brief, um, bearing in mind that it came in the context of a, um, a number of tall buildings in the area, including the 65-storey uh, Deanscape West. The Council of Relation to Heritage uh, made various allegations of impact on the conservation areas just outside the other side of the road from the edge of the conservation area, uh, the Castlefield Conservation Area, a number of listed buildings. He found no impact, um, not even a, 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 some very minor, less than substantial harm, uh, which you might think is, is um, quite uh, quite surprising in the context of, of a very large development next to so many listed buildings and next to a conservation area. It does just demonstrate, doesn't it, that uh, change doesn't equate to harm. Uh, again, that was in the context of the existing tall buildings in the area, so the inspector saw it. Um, he thought that there was a compelling need for the proposed development, not actually that it really mattered in the end because he didn't find any harm. But there was a need not just in terms of quantitative need, but also qualitative need, but given the um, relatively unsatisfactory nature of some of the existing student housing. You might recall we've covered fairly recently uh, at least two care home uh, or cases where um, the inspectors also found qualitative and as well as quantitative needs. So it's always important in, in a relation to specialist accommodation to look at is whatever the existing pipeline is, is it actually satisfactory anyway in qualitative terms? And then there are various allegations about environmental impacts, including um, issues of mentioning the wind, wind tunnelling. The inspector was quite critical of the local authority for um, not having um, sought more from the appellant uh, through the environmental statement. They submitted an environmental statement, had a chapter in relation to um, to wind um, and 
the council hadn't requested further information and yet when it came to the appeal it was part of its case was you haven't provided sufficient information and um, Kit Kat it seems quite quite fairly made the point that if they wanted any more information there was a mechanism under the EI regs to do that and it was far too late and inappropriate to do that on a quarry so lesson to be learned there so all in all it's better found as I said was good compliance development accordance development plan no conflicts Therefore, the need and benefits didn't actually have to be weighed in the balance, though it's fairly clear he would have given them significant weight anyway. So well done, Kit Quackman, an instructive case on um, on tall buildings and an interesting contrast to your Bromley case, Sasha. And with that in mind, over to you, Paul. Thank you very much indeed, Charlie. And hello, Joanna. Uh, welcome Hi. back. Uh, you now find yourself in the select group of three people who have had a return visit on Have We Got Planning News For You? Uh, last time you were on, it, you were four days into the job. We were asking you questions about the white paper uh, back in uh, September of 2020, and the world was very different at, at that stage. Um, at that stage, um, what we did was we went straight into the interview and therefore missed out some of the introductory stuff. Your CV is extraordinary. Um, going back all the way to the mid-1990s, where you were involved in the master planning uh, of Manchester City Centre after the IRA bomb. So as a Mancunian practice, you have my love and respect. Um, design has been an important part of your uh, career. You were the interim director of design at the Olympic Delivery Authority. Uh, you were seconded to the Homes and Community Agent. You were deputy chief exec of uh, director of design uh, at CAVE. Uh, and then before you took your current job, you were strategic manager growth uh, uh, for development at Crossrail 2, chair of the design review panel at Wandsworth. It goes on and on and on. It's extraordinary. Design is a real key element of uh, your background, and that perhaps sings through in terms of some of the approaches that are coming through uh, that, that we see in guidance. So last time we were talking to you about the white, uh, the white paper, this time you will be unsurprised to hear that the main event is definitely the levelling up uh, bill and the excitement that's uh, that's coming through in relation to that. Um, but before I ask you about that, how have the last 18 months been since you were last on the show? Amazing, actually. Um, uh, the thing about being in government is it's you're, you're seeing decision making at, at the centre of things. And it's a real privilege to be part of that and to advise in that context. And candidly, to be supported by a pretty incredible team of people. Um, uh, I mean, I am one person, but we have a really serious directorate with big brains, huge amounts of commitment, huge amounts of passion to what we're trying to do. And, and Paul, on design, I think it's really interesting. I, I'm definitely a placemaker. Um, and, uh, it, you know, my little old pink, hot pink shoe is a little bit of firmness, commodity and delight. Um, but actually, uh, it's about, you know, the placemaking is about the whole place. It's about all those sorts of different issues we're all trying to address for our towns and cities and our communities. So it's that holistic view, which which I hope I bring to, to what we do. But yeah, it's been fantastic. It's been fascinating. Uh, it's been fast. It might seem outs in the outside world that government moves really slowly, but internally, I can tell you the wheels turn very, very quickly and rapidly. So yeah, I've loved it. And uh, thanks to a huge, amazing team. Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy to see that you're still smiling 18 months later. And my original question was, have you missed us? But I'm not gonna ask you that question. Um, well, I've been watching you. I haven't missed you. I get, I get to watch you really often. Fantastic. <laughs> that's, that's what we like to hear, the, the public endorsement. Um, right. OK, so in terms of the, the levelling bill, up, leveling up bill itself, um, it's got a significant number of reforms. It's got a significant number of reforms to development management, uh, to development plan making, etc. But it's undoubtedly less wide ranging than the reforms we talked to you about last time in the, in the white paper. So, so what's the, the thinking behind the change of approach that's been taken? So it's worth thinking about the timing. So as you said, the white paper went out sort of mid-August, nearly two years ago now. Um, and uh, and we were working through sort of the, the, the policy package that came on the back of the white paper. But really importantly, doing huge amounts of engagement, uh, people on this call will know that we had 44,000 responses to the consultation, which I think, I'm not sure it's a record breaker, but it must be getting pretty close for, for sort of planning and built environment uh, consultations. And we had, I think, about 65 uh, roundtable sessions through that autumn. And then obviously sort of into, uh, you know, September 21, uh, we became a new department, Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities with uh, new leadership with the Secretary of State and uh, the team around him. And it was the right time to sort of, uh, obviously, as any uh, Secretary of State should do, to step back and look at the objectives of 
the department and how the major reforms that were in play at that time uh, met our ambitions and the ambitions for levelling up. And so there was this moment to sort of look across all of the package, um, look across, I suppose, the role of planning uh, in delivering positive change and making sure we were getting that right. So it's been an iteration. It's been an iteration through policy conversations, through listening to what external parties have been saying to us, through obviously uh, uh, ministerial and Secretary of State's decisions as they sort of build up towards then uh, the bill itself. And it is a levelling up and regeneration bill. Um, and as was said just after Christmas in the levelling up white paper, the really powerful thing is enabling the enabling power of planning. And that is written through the white paper and now is written through the bill. Um, and so I think people can probably see where those issues have come to the fore that are really important for that agenda. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so it, it, one of the reforms that's been, been brought through, which uh, has caused a lot of interest behind the scenes. When I started off, we had Section 54A and uh, the presumption in favour of the development plan. Then we had to all go away and make development plans after 1991 which then became section 38.6 in very similar uh, terms. Um, but the intention now is to have determination in accordance with the development plan, as well as the national development management policies, which I'll come to in a minute, unless material considerations strongly indicates the contrary. What, what's the thinking behind the, 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 the addition of the word strongly? Well, what we're basically doing is just reinforcing that we have a plan-led system in this country. But what we're also uh, doing through all of the reforms is trying to make sure local plans focus on the important things for local authorities and that they hold weight uh, and that all the plans that are in the sort of system hold proper weight. And so, you know, to be honest, it's sort of it's back to a really strong plan led system and the, and the authority in a way being in the hands of local authorities to do their strategies, to do their spatial thinking, put that into local plan and really record the things that are important to them. So it's just that sort of rebalancing towards plan led policymaking. And I think you'll probably go on to ask me about the role between national policy and the MPPF. So that gets obviously a boost then national development management policies. And the idea is, is that I think we all recognise that local plans have probably got a bit heavy uh, in terms of words, uh, in, and that sort of impacts on their navigability, their usability, the extent to which the communities engage with them as community documents. Um, and so what we're trying to do is sort of say, OK, if there are some issues, and it's probably quite selective, that we can consistently look at and elevate to a national level. Well, let's look and see if that's an opportunity to do that. Um, but also, I mean, I'm really clear that the MPPF is is the starting place for all local plans. I mean, we all know that, but we want that to be something that is has got a local ownership to it. And so what we're also doing is making sure all these policies become much more accessible to communities through digital transformation and things like that. So, you know, it, it, it it's, it's about streamlining plans, getting them to focus on the really important things that are important to local communities, local councillors and so on, um, and actually cutting out what we're picking up is in a lot of places, people tend to sort of repeat the MPPF maybe a few word changes here and there, but if we cut it down to the essential and the real essence of local plan making, then plans will be more user-friendly uh, and actually then the actual then development management process that sits behind them will be more transparent and more easy to engage with. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say, uh, as coming to the issue of national development management policies or NDMPs as we're, we're gonna forever know them in, in moving forward. Um, I, I confess, I think that's, that's an inspired idea, both stripping them out of the development plan system that has to be uh, uh, examined for soundness, but more importantly, it means that you don't reinvent the wheel in each and every um, uh, uh, development plan examination, and that when government policy changes, then you're arguing about whether policies are out of date or not. Um, so I, I genuinely think that's an inspired approach, and it should hopefully make things quicker. But what, what's the timescale and process for the production of, of NDMPs in the event that the Act is made in the current form? Yeah, so obviously the bill is the start of a process and uh, we've been doing lots of thinking up until this point, but there's a lot of work still to do. So um, over the coming months, we'll issue something which has been referred to as an NPPF prospectus. And I sort of see that as almost like a method statement for the uh, NPPF and the national development management policies. Um, and then post that, and obviously there'll be conversations after that, and then post that we'll obviously be issuing a full MPPF and national development management policies for consultation. So we are talking, you know, we're talking a sort of a number of months and probably, uh, you know, well into the back end of this year at the earliest before we'd be uh, looking to see the sort of full document out there. 
And it's worth saying that there's quite a few bits of, of the bill which will be followed by consultations, which people can engage with. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously an awful lot of devil in the detail, um, including the next topic, which is the, the abolition of the duty to cooperate. Sorry, can I just save at that moment? The abolition of the duty to cooperate. Uh, that's pausing for cheers. Um, that, that's patently welcome in some quarters, but it's, it's replacement with a flexible alignment test seems a little enigmatic at the moment. So, so do you want to give us a clue as to how that would work in practice? Will it be, for example, part of a revised soundness test or will it be a, a legal challenge only type test? What, what, what's envisaged by that, Joanna? Yeah, so that's another thing that will come through in terms of consultation. But we can we can definitely say that it's it's not going to be a legal test. It'll be very much something for for an, for an examiner to be looking at and working through with uh, local planning authorities um, through that process. And and Paul, I just wanted to highlight an aspect of it which I think is important to pick up, which is basically the 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 really important point that um, relevant bodies have to also engage in that in the process where we're asking local authorities to talk to neighbours consider uh, infrastructure delivery. Obviously, nobody lives or functions within the boundaries of our administrative areas, do we? we you know, places are, are much more complex than that. And I think that's quite an important point that it's also about planning for infrastructure and making sure that the sort of um, the relevant bodies who, are, who, are, who we rely on to sort of deliver some of that infrastructure are also part of that dialogue. So I think that's an important point to just to highlight as well. Good. Well, I should look forward to see how that, that uh, pans out in practice. Um, uh, right, neighbourhood planning. Um, neighbourhood planning has had a degree of controversy, huge amount of um, grassroots support, um, and there's an intention now to reform it. Um, and uh, certainly the indication from the, the documentation that supports the bill is to ensure that it facilitates uh, uh, housing growth rather than being used to frustrate housing growth. Um, uh, and the intention is, I think, I mean, it goes all the way back to what uh, Eric Pickle said at the very outset, which is it's meant to be an adjunct to and development in excess of the local plan uh, de developments. Well, they're now firmly part of our system and they're plainly not going away. How is the intention to make their role more closely defined to their original intention? I think we, we had a fascinating roundtable with some with a couple of neighbourhood um, uh, forums who had been preparing neighbourhood plans and, and got them in place and so on uh, a couple of months ago. And I think just a kind of few observations, which I think we'll all be aware of, but it's worth just noting, which is you get communities who make this huge investment of time. And then actually sometimes they're actually frustrated um, when their plans and all that investment seems to sort of come to naught because there's no weight put on their decisions and their careful work and all the rest of it. And, and also um, uh, really strong evidence of, of, of local authorities who invest in neighborhood plan preparation. And they then, you know, communities come forward with sites, they come forward with a, pra a more proactive stance to development. So it is seen as a sort of, we want to see it as a proactive tool. Um, it's definitely a very strong part of um, uh, the ongoing planning process. Um, and we'll be outlining, you know, what communities can include in their plans, but obviously they, and that they can still allocate um, sites for development and so on. But obviously that it has to complement um, and not go against, obviously, uh, the local plan. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to mention, which was um, neighbourhood priority statements. So uh, we were really conscious that as we seek local plans to be prepared in a more timely fashion, and obviously um, much better coverage than the sort of hovering around 40% that we have now in terms of up-to-date plans, uh, that there's a way of, a smart way of engaging with neighbourhood forums. Um, and so we've, uh, we're have we talking about a neighbourhood priority statement, which is a way of galvanising the, the issues that are important and putting them in up front into the plan making process so that you've got that sort of um, dialogue going from 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 the get go with organisations who are, you know, neighbourhood forums and parish councils and the like who are who would who would normally be going for a full neighbourhood plan. But that might take some time to get to full neighbourhood plan, but it shouldn't stop that engagement into the plan making process. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly a deficit of the current system that, that very often you end up turning up to a Section 78 appeal on an allocated site. And it seems to have been a surprise to the local residents that the site's even been allocated, uh, which is a deficit in terms of how perhaps plan examinations and local plans in draft form are publicised. OK, um, development management. Exciting stuff. There are a number of reforms in development management. So from the portmanteau, the one that's caught my eye particularly it is one which looks to reverse the Finney case, potentially, and rationalise the power um, that's currently in Section 73 and Section 96A. So uh, Section 73, the power to vary, which isn't actually a power to vary because it's a fresh permission, and 96A, minor amendments power. 
Um, and the proposal is to introduce a power to permit non-substantial amendments to a permission. Um, so can you explain how that's intended to work um, and how it's likely to work in practice? And, and would it include time limits so that we can vary time limits in a non-substantial way, which we can't under Section 73? So we're trying to make sure we've got the right uh, checks and balances in this. And as, as, as you know, as the court case found that you know, sometimes sometimes life does change. Sometimes, you know, planning applications do need amending and, and so on and so forth. But what we're trying to do is make sure that people can't basically game it. Um, by doing change on top of change on top of change until literally it's an unrecognisable scheme and actually it should have in combination have been a new planning a planning application. So it's always judged against the original scheme. Um, uh, and it's also the emphasis on, is on making sure that the scheme progresses and it's not a cause for delay. So it's actually not about extending timeframes, but actually about extend, you know, changing things which which should naturally change. Um, and it's it's things that are going to be judged to be not not su su um, substantially different. So again, we'll have to sort of you know be writing around and, and and having conversations about how that we give a greater definition to that as we go forward. Okay, good stuff. Um, right, another another area which has attracted some interest, um, and uh, that certainly uh, re resulted in some perhaps misunderstanding. I'm not sure. Um, so what's intended by street votes? Um, and there's been a suggestion, I think, that that's been perhaps misunderstood in the press so far, perhaps a little bit deliberately in some quarters. Yeah, I think we've probably all enjoyed the Matt cartoons. I mean, that, that was all I had in mind. <laughs> came out pretty quickly, didn't he? Um, and um, uh, we didn't quite make it into private eye, but, you know, that, that day may arrive. Um, uh, but, yeah, no, so... What, what, so I think what people, people who have been asking me questions about it, have been asking questions to people about how does this interface with the committee, planning committee, and and and, and, and the map cartoon was about the fact that a neighbour could say, I don't like my neighbour, their house is gone. Um, it's not about that. This is about um, a, 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 an ability to change positively and actually add things into a community, not take things away. And it's additive in terms of it not being about what you can already do through permitted development rights and things like that. So um, the way to sort of um, see it is that it's about where a community wants to or wants to get together and say, actually, we think we've got an opportunity to do what some refer to as gentle densification and and see that through as a community to sort of set our parameters and then go for a vote. Has to be a super majority, probably, or and we'll have to work through all these details and then take that through in terms of development. There is obviously lots more to do. It's what's put as a holding clause in the bill at the minute. So there'll be lots of um, more work being done on that, which will go into Parliament and will equally be part of parliamentary scrutiny. And we'll be looking at things like what, what are the parameters, what constitutes a street, what constitutes a vote, you know, what are the sort of the precursors to a vote even happening and then what does that mean as you go through so it's a holding clause um it's an easy thing for people to sort of misconstrue because actually some people are sort of saying well how would it interface with the planning committee the point being is it it wouldn't um it this would be about a community um uh, um collaborating together and deciding that there's a scale of change that's right for them and that they want to set some parameters again there's a, be a policy context for that um, uh, and they'd have to operate within that policy context and then um, uh, um, go ahead with that development. So it's all part of the empowering local communities at the, yeah, the lowest possible level, is that the idea? Yeah. 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 Good. We'll cancel the bulldozer for my next door neighbour then. Um, <laughs> good. Uh, infrastructure levy next. Uh, I, I can't believe I'm tripping so quickly through the, these points because these are big points. We could do an entire show in, in relation to some of these points. Um, so this is intended to be a mandatory locally set charge based on end development value, which, uh, as I understand it, is intended to replace SIL entirely. Again, pause for effect at that stage. Um, and it's somewhat Byzantine rules, which have kept lawyers engaged for an awfully long period, period of time. So how will it operate in principle? And will 106 survive in some form or other at the end of the day? Beautifully described, Paul. Very succinct. Um, uh, so... <laughs> So uh, yes, the whole point is that it's 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 locally set, locally collected, and the objective is that it would collect more than we collect now. Um, and uh, the idea is that it that 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 it is a mandatory charge. So you cut out the negotiation and the toing and froing. It's a much sort of simpler thing to do. It therefore brings greater transparency to the process. 
um, and it also gives a greater certainty actually of income potentially to a local authority. Um, uh, so the question of where you get into large and complex sites, I sort of describe it, you sometimes have a vertical complexity on projects, don't you? And we all know, for example, the scheme at, at King's Cross that's got a primary school underneath some housing and you get vertical uh, horizontal complexity where obviously the public realm is completely intertwined with the housing or, or the development or whatever it might be. Um, and so um, the idea is, is that when you're into that real sort of those sorts of really complex schemes or potentially really large scale, scale schemes, section 106 um, can still be used to deliver in kind. So the things that the developer should obviously be um, delivering as an integrated part of their scheme. The important point um, um, is that the what, what we can do is use the infrastructure levy to set the, the floor yeah. for the level of funding and then the in-kind you know sort of plays uh, plays out against that sort of floor level of, of funding um so that's that's that is what again we'll be thinking through and again it's a subject for further consultation into the future but those are the sort of broad parameters um uh, of the scheme and and actually it's probably the longest section and if anybody hasn't uh, in both the bill but also the explanatory notes there's quite a good um uh, description of the scheme there and what's in the public domain if people want to have a good look at that yeah good thank you very very much for that and then my final question is um one of the few benefits from brexit brackets guess how i voted so one of the few benefits from brexit is the opportunity to remove the extent of eu-based regulation in relation to eias seas essays and any other acronyms you can think of uh, and that's proposed to be replaced by the uh, by the environmental outcomes report can you explain what, what's what's proposed in practice? And does this mean there's a future where I don't have to read documents that are this thick uh, and I'm, it turns out I'm the only person reading them? Well, how's it going to work out in practice, Joanna? So, uh, again, when we talk to, uh, you know, colleagues across the industry, um, particularly as we look at issues associated with climate adaptation and climate change, uh, everyone is constantly asking, well, how can we be more outcomes focused and to some extent, has EIA, SEA sort of lost its way and become sort of too, too committed to the paper paperwork and the coverage and not focusing on the important. Um, and actually just a little reflection, um, colleagues of mine when I was working on Crossrail 2 were, were, were in the process of starting to really look at digital EIAs um, and, um, uh, and actually being really clear on scoping so that you, you don't feel the need to report on absolutely everything. And actually then the important also gets a bit buried. Um, so the principle of um, environmental outcomes report is that, you know, you set, you know, government would set a series of outcomes which, which people should be striving towards um, or surpassing. Um, and then uh, the environmental outcomes report would report on those issues. But if you give a very clear structure in that process, again, digitally enabled, you can really focus on the right things in terms of scope definition. You can really be smart about the evidence gathering. You can then feed through into the analysis and then into the monitoring and the and the onward um, sort of basic performance measurements and so on like that. So, so again, it's one of these things that we're trying to make sure we're sort of also being smart about about how we can use digital data. And um, the team already, as colleagues probably know, doing quite a lot of work with local authorities across the country on different bits of digital transformation. Um, and one of those strands is uh, is about how you you bring all that digital data into an open source way, some of which we already know, lots of ONS data, but make it really accessible, particularly to those preparing plans or preparing projects or preparing environmental outcomes report. And a good example of that that's already out there is, um, is the uh, green infrastructure tool that um, Natural England have developed, which is a really great mapping tool uh, for the country where you can see where there's an under, under provision of public space and different environmental protections. So we're on this kind of really quite exciting journey um, about how we galvanize all that intelligence in a smart way and then make the actual environmental outcomes reports themselves focus on the important things and be meaningful in terms of their their measurement brilliant thank you mary do you have a question for joanna i do thank you very much um joanna i wanted to take you to the three hundred thousand uh homes per annum target uh, and and i suppose in the first instance i i i I wanted to understand, um, is that still the target? Uh, and the other thing linked to that I wanted to also understand is, um, is it the case that uh, the standard method might be revised? Should, should uh, uh, planning authorities, for example, um, be thinking to themselves, 
we should pause in our plans until we know where we're going with the standard method. Thanks, Mary. So first message is please don't pause. Um, uh, uh, we've, we, there was a, a target date set of sort of end of 23 for those that are sort of still in, in the depths of plan preparation to kind of crack on. And, and we're definitely encouraging people still to do that. Um, so 300,000 is definitely still the target. What's interesting is you look at the data over what I suppose was was core um, pandemic year, we were at about 216,000. And then the year before that, we were at 244,000. So we're kind of, we're kind of, it's all going in the right direction. Um, uh, and then, you know, but as with everything, you know, we, we, we obviously, um, and ministers and, and Secretary of State will continually keep under review, you know, how policy plays out and, and, and how it's, it's applied and, and its utility. Um, and so, you know, as we do the MPPF prospectus, we'll sort of, you know, we'll make sure we're reflecting on that. But I really would encourage people to, you know, we need to provide shelter for, for our communities and housing is a vital part of that and housing is a vital part of levelling up. And the Secretary of State has very clear um, missions that are set out within um, the levelling up white paper, um, which this department will be at the heart of, 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 of helping deliver across government. Um, and one of them is about housing quality. Um, and one of them is, is you know, it, so it starts with having shelter, then it start, then the next thing is decent shelter. Um, and then the next, um, uh, if we had to make a choice between these things, but let's hope we don't, is a neighbourhood that also meets your requirements as well. Um, so no, the, this, this target is definitely here to stay. Thank you, Mary. Um, Chris, you have a question. I do. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, Joanna, hello. We're getting lots of comments here. I'll just share a couple of them with you. Simon Wilkins saying about the um, street votes. That's difficult to see how that's going to benefit in the in the nature of we've got so much opposition by local people. It's um, it's difficult to see how that's going to be seen positively. But um, I'm sure you've given that some thought. Um, and Bob uh, Pectock said uh, he said that. Is the MPPF and the tilted balance staying? Is that is that? Can I just ask you that quickly? Is that the intention? You said the MPPF would probably change. We we'll have another version towards the end of the year. Is that right? Well, we'll we'll be working through it throughout this year, timing to be confirmed. But um, the at the end, the, the starting point of any new MPPF MPPF is the one we have now. Um, and you know, planning will always be a matter of judgment, and unless you. You know, you, you present every time, you know, these sort of how, we, how, how people make judgments against different competing issues um, and sometimes issues that don't align and sometimes issues that contradict um, and sometimes the issues that beautifully align uh, and certainly issues that parties will dispute uh, one way or another. So planning decisions are always going to be about that when it comes to development management and for permitting or not permitting development. Um, and so, you know, we will still have to have that framework in terms of how how decision makers play out these competing issues. Um, and just on street votes, the other thing that obviously, which we haven't touched on is that the um, leveling up regeneration bill um, mandates for local authorities to prepare area-wide design codes. Um, and you guys already know this, but the national model design code as it is now is already material in planning um, uh, uh, considerations. Um, and so the framework for kind of um, placemaking and qualitative decisions is actually really strong uh, and that that uh, that framework um, will also apply um, to things like street votes but then a local community would then sort of say okay but for our particular street where do we want to go uh, in terms of particular design parameters but that, that all that other work there is backdrop. Okay I'll move on to, to my question I'm taking from that no um, obviously ministers decide these things but no intention to get rid of the presumption and the tilted balance at this stage anyway um, that's going to still be in there yes we'll be working through the MPPF in the in the coming months so you know okay okay so my question was about the process really because a lot of the viewers would be interested in the process you, you explained how there was lots of engagement huge amounts of engagement and started the process um you know about two years ago what happens after that just in terms of the process is it that the um is it that the ministers sort of set certain things that they want to achieve and then the department works around that um because i'm just interested in how and i think people are interested in how it works and then, you know, when, when are we going to see or when do we think we're going to see, say, the enforcement provisions enacted? So um, you won't be surprised to know that we had to carve it up 
a sort of set of policy questions, but also hold it together as a sort of single um, system because everything, as we know, in planning interrelates with everything else. Um, so we, we actually took it forward in terms of looking at particular elements of, of change. Um, and we, we we did that through a kind of a sort of, you know, a, a, a classic, people might know this, you know, sort of process that's referred to as sprints, where you, you, you go into a particular policy issue and you think about it uh, really quick, really, um, sharply within a very particular time frame but with continual testing and continuing challenge as you go through it because when you're trying to do quite a lot of lot of consideration um uh, you have to sort of you have to gradually you know try and settle a few things um and and obviously you know um um that's that's basically us advising obviously ministers um uh, and the decisions sort of flowing through as we come but you know to do a bill of this size is no small feat. So there then is a pretty astonishing team um, of of lawyers and the bill team who then galvanise it all into legislation. And I mean, you know, credit to them. They they are pretty expert, or well, very expert, because a lot of this is impenetrable because it's actually talking about other law. So you know, you have to sort of, and then we have to write the explanatory explanatory notes. But then for those who are feeling a little less time sensitive or our turn time sensitive there's the 12 pager so you can kind of see you, you you then have to build that entire product which is pretty significant um and this is just the start so the parliamentary process will now run through in terms of going through both the houses going to committee um uh, and then you know uh, as i said for example street votes is a holding clause there'll be more work going on on that um and then we get to the end of that and as you know planning isn't just the legislation um it's then the regulations and the MPPF and other things that we've been talking about. So this is the start of quite a big programme. Um, and I just want to touch on a little bit, which is that we do not think this is all about legislation and policy. We also absolutely recognise this is about a programme of change for local government, and we're asking them to do change at a time that's pretty tricky. Um, and so we've also, um, uh, alongside things like the Pathfinder work we're already doing and the investments in digital transformation, we're also doing lots of work on capacity and capability in local government. Um, and, you know, we do generally want local planners to feel really empowered to, to own their local planning processes, to take um, um, councillors with them and for councillors to feel that planning is one of their most powerful tools, both politically, but actually in terms of meeting community expectation and aspiration so that work starting um uh, and will sit alongside uh, this the sort of more traditional policy development as we go forward okay uh, that beautifully links through to sasha's question sasha you have a question yes i do joanna um can i bring you back to the present and just deal with the issue which is <clears> happening <throat> increasingly in the southeast which is authorities effectively um, placing a politically imposed embargo on, on bringing forward development plans or chucking into the bin development plans that are going through the system. What, what steps are, uh, will be considered to effectively get proper and constructive engagement with the development plan process? So we, we obviously um, uh, support the planning advisory service. We fund them to go into local government and provide them with a sort of, I suppose, a roadmap and support um, as they sort of go through their plan processes. Um, and, you know, what we will do, obviously, what, obviously what we will also be doing is, is looking at the transition from one system to the next. And that's obviously, I think, what, to Mary's point, will be something people will be wanting to know more about as soon as possible. And obviously we will, we will um, think that through um, and then be talking to colleagues across local government about that. Um, but this isn't literally, as you know, as indicated, you know, it's, it's well into next year until we might have an act rather than a bill. And then there's much to go, there's a fair bit to go beyond that in terms of secondary legislation and national policy and so on. So we've got a bit of, bit of time, but we don't want people to feel that it's all over there. We do want to build this kind of capacity and capability and, and buy into this, these new processes and this sort of new know-how in terms of doing smart plans. And I suppose, Sasha, to be honest, that is the main objective, which is to make local plans much more easy to prepare. Um, and, and, and at the heart of it, it's about, you know, preparing a strategy for your place. And I know people might have heard me say this before, but it's a very simple point, but I can't think of any area of business, public policy, uh, where people don't do a strategy or a plan. If you're dealing with change, which we all are, 
um, uh, uh, how can you progress that and take people with you as a local leader if you don't have a plan? Um, so I think it's just, there's a little bit in this, which is about, I think all of us talking about the role and purpose of planning. Um, uh, the Secretary of State is really clear um, about the fact that this is about delivering much better quality, embedding the demands for and the, and the parameters for design quality, beauty, uh, right into the heart of the planning process, which we started last summer, obviously, with the MPPF updates and, and the national uh, model um, national model design code. And then, you know, the delivery of infrastructure, you might have heard this, this sort of Biden, uh, the delivery of infrastructure so that communities know, okay, development comes, but actually we also see wider benefits. We don't see just cost, um, uh, that actually democracy, democracy is at the heart of it. People have a say. They can engage really uh, at an early stage in plan making. It's made easy for them to do that through digital transformation. That environment is at the heart of that. That's environmental enhancement, environmental protection, but also the journey towards net zero and dealing with the climate adaptation that's already upon us and then neighbourhoods, seeing how this works for people in their places of where they live and their neighbourhoods. So those sorts of principles are, are all very strong in what we're doing. And one would hope that, you know, for anybody who is a local politician, that I think sings to what their constituents want and that planning is the route to deliver those things. Uh, the final question comes from the Bon Jovi superfan, the man that's modelled his entire life professionally and personally upon the great John Bon Jovi. Charlie, do you have a question for Joanna? I, I do. We are. I am trying to get him on the show. There is a hooks game on the show, actually. But watch this. He means it. He really uh, means it. <laughs> um, he's very involved in affordable housing in New Jersey. Um, anyway, it, it, was, um, it was David Hasselhoff last time, Charlie. Oh yes, you know. actually, no, no, I won't rest. This, we're going to have fifty-five thousand episodes of this program until John Bon Jovi eventually agrees to come on. Uh, that will happen. <laughs> you think I'm joking? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I actually negotiated two questions. I can't not ask a question about phosphates, but before I do, um, I've just listened to what you're saying. I'm going to ask you a slightly different question to the one I intended uh, about the. The, the bill and, and indeed the policy associated policy changes being informed, as the Secretary of State has himself said, um, by the notion that greater public involvement in the planning process, not just the street votes, but um, local plan making, etc., will will encourage communities to be more supportive of housing, win people round. That's a point that's been made a lot. Um, some people might say, well, we've heard that before. We heard that before with neighbour planning. That was the premise of neighbouring planning. It didn't quite work out like that. That when when communities were given the power, um, they used it to prevent development. Um, so my question really is: What are the lessons learned from the neighbourhood plan regime so far, uh, and how uh, as to how to um, avoid that outcome in the present context, and how to make sure that the power given to people isn't abused? That's a really powerful question. I'm, go I'm going to hop back to 20 to 2000. Just forgive me for a minute while I just go back in time. Um, when um, we set up CABE, Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment, so we are talking 22 years ago, and it does feel like a long time ago, but it also feels like yesterday. Um, we were looking at a development industry that didn't even know how to talk about design. Um, yet we were on the cusp of, I think, what we would all probably professionally recognise as a decade of significant change to our built environment. I mean, massive in investment, huge amounts of money coming in, both to the public public estate, so hospital schools, um, public housing, public realm, as well as, let's call it sort of the private world of, of major commercial offices and so on. Now, we, we were there to promote uh, a change in attitude that was both a change in attitude to uh, the professionals, which is, you know, basically um, those spending the money, those those commissioning the design, those evaluating the design uh, and the users of those buildings. And we often debated how what was going to make the biggest change. Um, now, I think several things happened. I think we changed the professional uh, um dialogue and actually the professional outcomes. We did it by every means. We did it by stick, which is design review. Uh, we did it by by gentle uh, encouragement, which was putting people into local government and into projects to give a stronger uh, confidence to the client mm -hmm. to sort of demand better. Uh, we did it by research, um, uh, but we also uh, 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 were part of 
a bit of a zeitgeist, which was the world was really interested in design and in, in all its aspects. Um, and we can think of grand designs as the easy go to kind of example of that. But it's sort of pretty it, it sort of grew through that decade. I think it's interesting to reflect on whether we're at a similar point um, generally for climate adaptation and climate change, um, housing and shelter affordability um, and a people's connectedness to their place. Um, and so I, I do, I, I, I call me a horrible optimist, but I, um, I do feel like we're sort of at a moment. And actually, we all need to talk about that moment and that opportunity. Um, and, and sort of, you know, why should anybody in this country be buying a house which is of less quality than somebody else 200 miles away, 100 miles away? Um, why should one community have access to good green space and ecology on their front doorstep and another community not? Why should one community have an integrated public transport system and a cycleway to their school and another community not? I mean, these are all, these, these are all as outlined in the National Model Design Code, things that anybody should be capable of delivering. Now apply that to the neighborhood. And then the question is, do people recognize that as positive change? And will they recognise this as sort of, you know, a community? I Again, I sound terribly idealistic, but a kind of community responsibility, you know, and to, to sort of shape what happens next um, uh, and make that right choice between and understanding your place's character, understanding the things that are absolutely there as pure preservation and conservation and understand where change is a positive and how you shape that change in the right way and how you use planning, design codes, you know, and all those other things to neighbourhood plans to sort of get that to happen. And Thank create you. the environment for development, which gets you the right outcome. Fascinating. It's going to be very interesting how that uh, plays out. And then I did say I was going to ask a question on phosphates. Actually, as it happens, lots of people have mentioned it too. Um, a subject close to my heart, as you may uh, be, be aware, having written a, a, a fairly well-known advice on, on the subject. But what's the government going to do about it? Because it's a really, it's a really big problem. It's obviously holding up. Is that something like 100,000 homes at the moment? And there's obviously there's two issues. There's the one there's reserve matters and discharge of conditions, which there may be a legal answer to. But there's the bigger picture, which is all the new stuff, which to which there isn't a legal answer to, other than to uh, perhaps scrutinise Natural England's uh, advice. Um, is it enough just to offer local authorities a hundred grand or whatever? Is that really enough? What, what's the what's the government doing to find a real meaningful and prompt solution? So we obviously did gear up to have a, a, a response at the point that it, the, the, the more local authorities were affected by it, and as you say, Charlie, you know, giving them um, a resource to basically bring it bring in expertise which they could share across the catchment and start to resolve some of these issues as far as they could and have some in-house expertise we also funded the planning advisory service to provide some some technical expertise through workshops and actually some peer-to-peer learning um, between local authorities but we recognize you know that it's it's an issue that is invariably going to play out in terms of housing delivery and we're working with the local authorities that it's impacting on we're obviously working really closely with defra um, and, and Natural England on this issue. And, you know, we will be looking for sort of solutions because nutrient neutrality is the sort of holding position is it cannot be the long term solution to the issue. Um, and, you know, responses will have to um, uh, uh, not just look at the the impacts on development and the development contribution, but actually where the problem is arising from in the first the farmers place. And the, the farmers and the, and, the, and the water companies, and it's, isn't the development industry taking the hit for, for pollution caused by other people? This is what we're looking at, which yeah. is how do you how do you get to a solution which which will yeah. actually give not just a short term um, issue, but actually a sort of a, a medium term fix to this. Brilliant. Ch Ch Charlie stuck to the really easy question at the very I know, end. Yes. Uh, <laughs> one for the future, Charlie, is the answer to, to that. Um, thank you. Jo Joanna, thank you very much indeed. And for those that will watch this interview moving forward, uh, and hugely important to the, to the whole profession, can I just say that the explanation as to why it is that I've got two Dr. Martin things stuck here and a Dr. Martin boot there is not because <laughs> I'm a buffoon. It's entirely your fault, Joanna. So I'm not taking responsibility for that for anybody watching that. But other than that, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really, really Pleasure. been a privilege. Absolutely. Thank you.
Charlie. Thank you. No, he's actually wearing pink heels. That's just a big bluff. The Dr. Martin's double bluff. Um, thank you, Joanna. Joanna, it's been really, thank really you, Joanna. We hope, we hope you'll come again on the show. There's obviously a, um, a, a lot of um, further progress the bill and the policy is going to have. So there's a lot, lots of, lots of things to, to watch this space for. So thank you so much for coming. Um, and, yeah, and watch, watch this space for more consultations. There'll be plenty more to come in, in the coming months. Well, I say we certainly will. Thank you very much again um, and enjoy the event this evening and everybody else uh, will see you soon. Don't forget to watch the new Top Gun movie. It's amazing. It's better than the first one. Saw it last night. Absolutely brilliant. Take care, everybody. See you in a couple of weeks time. Bye-bye. Thanks, Joanna. Cheers. Bye.